Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. On Commons People this week, Boris Johnson under pressure. Today, Professor Ferguson said going into lockdown a week too late. Do we all need a history lesson? You know, we had a statue up to someone who made his money uh, buying and selling people. And what next for the Lib Dems? Um, Actually, what I offer is, is another way of looking at politics. There's a different space that we can carve out. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hey Paul, Rachel Wearmouth's also here. Hello. Hi Rachel and we're delighted to be joined by the Lib Dem leadership candidate Leila Moran. Hello. Hi Leila, how are you? How's lockdown? I'm really, well, same as everyone really, it's a bit rubbish (laughs) but we we crack on. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, Tory discontent over Boris Johnson's handling of coronavirus has been growing. Despite further easing of the lockdown, the Prime Minister is facing increasing pressure to reduce the two-metre social distancing rule. There are also concerns over the fact that children will soon be able to go look at monkeys in zoos, but many will be unable to go to school until September at the earliest. And the PM is still refusing to say whether he regrets anything about the UK's response. Let's listen to Johnson clashing with Beth Rigby of Sky News on the issue. Today, Professor Ferguson said going into lockdown a week too late cost an estimated 25,000 lives or more. So the same question, please, to all three of you. What is your biggest regret and what do you now wish you'd done differently? Well, Beth, I really I really can't go further than the answer that... Uh, that I've already given, and I, I, you know, I'd ask Chris and Patrick to, to comment on, on, on that. Of course, you know, we're going to have to look back at all of it and learn the lessons that we can. But frankly, I think that uh, a lot of these questions are, are still premature, and there are lots of things, lots of data, lots of uh, things that we still don't know. And this epidemic has a, has a long way to go, alas, uh, not, in this, not just in this country, but around the world. Uh, Paul, why can't Boris Johnson admit mistakes have been made other leaders around the world have well it's a really good question i think that um what's going on right now in number 10 is the calibration about exactly when to do some kind of apology and what form it should take there will be one obviously there has to be you can't credibly claim to have made a success of this given the sheer number of people who've died um and it's as i say it's a question of when it's a question of how it's it's formulated that that form of apology will it be an expression of regret will it be an, an sorry not sorry will it be um some kind of uh, statement to the commons on the lines of you know tony blair's or or even david cameron's on things like um you know the the bloody sunday shootings um 
and it's got to be something that's sincere. I mean, I would have hoped at some point we're going to come to a stage where we actually erect a memorial to all those who've died. I mean, that's got to be a huge question, surely, for all the parties. Um, there's got to be some focus for everybody's mourning. Um, and maybe it will be wrapped up in that. Um, we're still, as he says, at an early stage in this. He doesn't want a, a quick post-mortem for obvious reasons. Um, but I think it wouldn't do him any harm to at least uh, put down a marker to express some kind of regret. Because, you know, if you've got even someone who looked very uncomfortable last night, Nicola Sturgeon on Newsnight, very, very uncomfortable when she was asked about this. And she said, we've all made mistakes here. I want to learn from them. We haven't heard anything like that from Boris Johnson. If he even just sort of started to engage with that, I think that would be a start. Yeah, Leila, what do you make of that? And what do you make of where we are currently in the crisis? Well, going off what I'm seeing in my post bag from my constituents, uh, they are confused. Uh, they have lost faith in this government. They feel that actually... They want the government to be getting this right. And it's almost a deep regret when they've realized they've been really badly let down. And that's a real difference to the beginning of this crisis where there was definitely a sense of people rallying around the government. You know, don't, don't you know, just be as positive as you can, get on with it, get, don't be tribal, get in there together. But there comes a point where my job is to try and help them to get better by giving suggestions, showing them where they could be doing it better. And that's why I've been calling for an inquiry that should start now. And the reason for that is it's not political point scoring. It's recognizing that unless we learn the lessons about what went wrong over the, particularly those first few weeks, we heard uh, in select committees this week that if we had locked down a week earlier, we could have halved the number of deaths. We need to understand where this has gone wrong in time for a second wave that might well be coming towards the end of August as uh, August, autumn, uh, early winter. And that's really concerning to me. So let's let's stop being the strong man, just admit that it's not ideal, but then move on and say, well, I've made some mistakes. I want to know what those mistakes were. I want to make sure they don't happen again. I think he would actually get a lot of kudos for doing that. I just don't see Boris Johnson doing it. Yeah, just down to kind of the, the issue of the moment that is causing a lot of angst in the Conservative Party, especially, which is uh, the two metre rule. Do you think that should be relaxed now so to help businesses like pubs, for example? I have always been public health led. And if there is advice from SAGE that is saying cautious about this, uh, then I think we should be listening to the scientists. Um, my concern is that one of the reasons that I saw for us not locking down early enough was concerns over the economy. That was the wrong decision, clearly, because what it's meant now is that our R rate remains stubbornly high compared to other countries. And it's caused a double damage to the economy. If we then release too early, you then face a catastrophic second wave at the end of this year. At the time when we're facing a hard Brexit, possibly no deal Brexit, the economy is going to be kicked from three sides at the same time. This is an atrocious situation that we are in. They need to keep being cautious because in the end, in the medium term, that is going to be what's the right thing for the economy. So I'm a bit more concerned about it, I think, than they are. But if the science comes round and says, yes, it's right for this country, uh, then I will follow that. Yeah, Rachel, uh, the government was sort of cautious on, well, wasn't cautious on schools at first and, and announced plans to reopen primaries by summer or before, for a few weeks before summer. Uh, they've scrapped that plan now. It, are children being somewhat overlooked in this crisis or not taken as seriously? 
Um, it doesn't seem like they've been a, a priority from from day one. It seems like the government's been kind of overwhelmed and hasn't given it the the kind of deep thinking that that, that you would expect. I think one of um, the really interesting aspects, well, interesting is perhaps not the right word, but one of one of the aspects that will get increasing amounts of attention, I think, over the coming months will be just how this is affecting disadvantaged kids. And um, we had. Uh, the uh, Social Mobility Commission's report out this week, which um, just underlined some facts that were were already the case be- before coronavirus um, be- took hold in the UK. I mean, it pointed out the uh, six hundred thousand more children in relative poverty now than there were in in twenty twelve, um, and it also highlighted just a number of failures um, of the government made particular points around post sixteen education um, and technical education. Um, and early years in particular. Um, and it just said that a third of their recommendations that they've made over the past seven years already haven't been acted on. So um, when we hear from Boris Johnson that he wants um, children to have some kind of catch up this summer, that's kind of like just, you know, it's not even a needle in a haystack for for some of the impact that we already know is happening for disadvantaged kids. So yeah, I think there's a, a lot to think about there. And there's, there's one other thing that I'm kind of, I've been following that it's just hasn't been thought about at all, I feel, is um, just what the impact is on uh, children and care at the moment. Um, when um, we locked down, not, not long after that, the government brought in some emergency measures, which um, sort of... Um, loosened the protections for, for kids in care. So um, they, they now no longer have a right to hear from their social worker every every six weeks, I think it is. Um, the, the, you know, the, now it's just as soon as is practicable. And this is this is um, something that the government had tried to um, change a couple of years back and, and was unable to because it, it had a lot of opposition. Um, and I think there's a big worry now that the, these regulations might not be temporary and they might end up being a long-term thing yeah it's an interesting point generally which is that we know now that this crisis is impacting um sort of more deprived we know about bme people but we also know it's impacting more deprived people more disadvantaged people a lot more you are Um, twice as likely to die if you come from a poorer background than a well well off background i mean that's just shocking as a as an exposing of the underbelly of inequalities in our society it's utterly shocking and it should be something that galvanizes people into action i hope uh, yeah. as we as we move into this next phase and build back yeah i wanted to ask you leila what what sort of action should we take and surely as we kind of sort of build out of this lockdown and build out of this crisis it, we should we could be taking measures immediately to try absolutely. and absolutely Absolutely. I mean, I think I was struck by there was a poll that asked people, uh, how much do you want to go back exactly to the way it was before? And it was only nine percent. And I think with all the all the difficulties that everyone's going through, there's also been some things that have been really positive. You know, for the first time, many of us are getting to know our neighbours much more than we did before. We're walking around city streets with air pollution uh, way down for the first time in a long time. Uh, we're not bo- um, burning as much coal and, and gas. You know, these are good things. But the immediate issue is to tackle the, the real pain that people are going through, the s- people who are losing their jobs. As Rachel very rightly said, disadvantaged children. I mean, I've been really concerned by the number of vulnerable children not attending school. And we are expecting a spike in the number of referrals now to children's social care uh, as we begin to, to slowly reopen schools. I mean, it's 
we cannot go back to how it was before. Uh, there is a movement across uh, many political parties called Build Back Better. It comes from the phrase the UN uses uh, when it is looking at how do you build resilience back uh, after a crisis. I think that's a really uh, important thing for us to bear in mind now. Uh, what I've been calling for is, a, is actually a, have, looking again at how we tackle the economy, You know, having well-being at the heart of our economy, not just growth. Growth is not everything. And actually, there are some things that we need to be prioritizing over others. Investment in early years and children being a really good example. Investment in the green economy. Uh, we can make these choices now. Uh, and we're going to have to make some really difficult choices. But let's make sure they're the right ones. Uh, Paul, just the last one on this. Uh, Boris Johnson, I imagine, is really, really unhappy about what's gone on with schools or how he might have handled it. He's, he's big on education, isn't he? Well, he might be. But unfortunately, he's not shown it because... I think, um, as others have said, and, and he was forced to admit last night for the very first time, it's not just about lives being lost or saved by the NHS. It's not just about livelihoods and the economy. It's about life chances. And that's what education is about. And there should be this triumvirate. There should be, the, there should be three equal parts of the recovery. Um, and education has been the poor relation. It's so obvious. Mm -hmm. And you, when you ask why... It's because the Prime Minister has not prioritised it. In other words, a lot of that rhetoric about levelling up clearly wasn't um, uh, as thought through as he, he claimed it was for the red wall seats, never mind the rest of the country, because um, they're the people who are going to suffer. A lot of those disadvantaged kids are in those areas. So he's got an electoral interest, which is why it's baffling he didn't seize it earlier. But more important than that, I think, is, and I keep saying this, is the lack of experience within number 10, but also the lack of experience around the cabinet table. If you had a yep. strong education secretary with it, a very grounded uh, experience in in uh, the, way, the way of handling the, the sector, teachers, but not just teaching unions, but the whole sector itself, you'd have someone who was gripped from the word go about how to have some practical solutions. Like Kirsty Williams in Wales, who has done actually the very opposite of Gavin Williamson and has set the example. Uh, he should have been looking at what Wales was doing and actually following. It's also not it's not that the government's going to be able to argue that they've they hadn't had enough information or warnings about the impact that this period is having on, on disadvantaged kids. For example, the Sutton Trust and um, they did a study in the sort of early stages and said two th two thirds of children have not even taken part in online lessons during the lockdown. And pupils at private schools were more than twice as likely to get daily online tuition. And you know, when it comes to exam results and when we get further down the line and we see inequality grow and you know it's just storing up problems and it's not like people aren't telling the government how serious it is right now so yeah and conservative and mps are saying it really loudly the prime minister as arj was pointing out in his piece today i mean that's the point you've got now this constituency it won't just be the opposition parties who are going to push the prime minister on issues like this you know they are blue collar conservatives they are red wall conservatives they know it's hurting them really hard and some of them are former teachers you know um jonathan gullis this week in the education select committee's wife's a teacher she sees the problems piling up um and i think that is it's it's a novelty in some ways yes of course there's been always public sector people within the tory party but there are more than ever uh, there's that influence on on a prime minister directly from his own party whether he's going to listen to it is something else yeah and i've been hearing from mps talking about incompetence and lack of experience and we've kind of seen that with rory stewart's uh experienced foreign minister's comments being highlighted he was of course purged by boris johnson 
uh, over Brexit, or maybe he quit, I can't remember. He was effectively purged, wasn't he? But, he was. <laughs> um, but he was warning about the lockdown two weeks before it was introduced, so it wasn't even hindsight. But um, there we go, we must move on. Uh, the Black Lives Matter protests continue in what increasingly feels like an important moment in the fight against racial injustice. This week has been dominated by a row over history after demonstrators in Bristol tore down a statue glorifying the slave trader Edward Colston. Uh, more statues continue to come down and there are campaigns for more to be removed. Johnson, meanwhile, has recalibrated his response to the movement uh, and there was an extraordinary moment in the Commons this week as Priti Patel defended the Tories' record on tackling racial injustice. Let's listen. The very peaceful protests that have taken place but I'm really saddened that the Honourable Lady has effectively said that this government doesn't understand um, racial inequality. Well, on that basis, Madam Deputy Speaker, it must have been a very different Home Secretary who, as a child, was frequently called a packy in the playground. A very different Home Secretary who was racially abused in the streets or even advised to drop her surname and use her husband's in order to advance her career. A different Home Secretary recently characterised, if Madam Deputy Speaker I can say so, in the Guardian newspaper as a fat cow with a ring through its nose, something that was not only racist but offensive, both culturally and religiously. This is hardly an example of respect, equality, tolerance or fairness. So when it comes to racism, sexism, tolerance or social justice, I will not take lectures from the other side of the House. I have already said repeatedly, there is no place for racism in our country or in society. Uh, Paul, Pretty Patel's response there was quite powerful, but does, the, does her central claim that the government really gets this issue hold true? Well, I think the problem with that response was that it, it came in response to Flo Ashalomi, who's the MP for, for Vauxhall, a black MP who'd made the very legitimate point uh, does the government understand racial inequality and, and the structure of racial inequality in Britain um, is there such a thing as so structural racism within the system and it's a legitimate question and for Pretty Patel to answer by saying yeah I've experienced racism myself I get it isn't enough um, and I felt that I mean it was obvious the instant response from from uh, Flo was actually I feel like you're silencing me as a black woman then you get into the whole issue of whether or not BAME is is too crude a term, as we've talked about before on this podcast. You know, um, Nadine White, who writes for us, wrote a very powerful piece about the fact that a lot of black people felt actually quite let down when Boris Johnson appointed his first cabinet because it, it didn't have any black faces in it. Uh, it had lots of Asian faces, but that it's not exactly the same if you're a black person in Britain. So... Um, we've we've come to this curious situation where, in my youth, in in like the 1980s, there was this left wing concept of being politically black. Labour councils adopted it. White people could be politically black. Everyone could be politically black. The Tory Party now it seems to be saying that people in the cabinet are politically black if you're Asian, um, which is, I have to say, quite a change. Yeah, I had this out with a yeah. With, a, with an advisor this week. But um, Leila, uh, the statues debate is continuing and it's it's an issue in your constituency as well with uh, Cecil Rhodes in Oxford. Um, is it a bit of a distraction from the bigger issues though? I don't think the debate around the statues themselves is a distraction because it very quickly moves on to us talking about our history, 
facing our own country's colonial past. I think it's a really important conversation to have. My own view about the Cecil Rhodes statue is that it should be moved into a museum and put in its historical context. Uh, I do think it shouldn't be celebrated. I think the distraction was people who took the law into their own hands and pulled statues down. Uh, that then undermined uh, parts of the movement. And I would say the same about people who caused trouble at the protests, that was the distraction. But the conversation we're having as a society, I think is really, really important. Um, I think a lot of people, whilst even, even liberal Democrats that I speak to who have long championed equality are now recognizing that as a society, we have inbuilt systematic racism uh, in the way that society operates. And that's a really difficult, really sensitive conversation to have. A lot of people feel quite ashamed by it. They want to run and hide and pretend that, you know, it's not happening, but actually it's really important it happens. My own view is that we should absolutely overhaul the history curriculum in schools. And if you had a way of confronting some of these issues much earlier on, uh, in a way that's open and in a way that's uh, intellectually sound as well, uh, that that would help the situation in the same way that we do that with LGBT rights and the RSC curriculum. Let's look at the history curriculum and revamp that, ideally done in partnership uh, with advocates uh, and with the black and brown communities that are crying out uh, for equality at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that this this issue of uh, educating ourselves about colonial history isn't going away. Uh, Rachel, though, would it help if Johnson came out more strongly against Donald Trump and what he's doing in America? Um, I don't know about come out more strongly or, the, or, or just say anything at all. I mean, when he when he was asked about this at um, Prime Minister's Questions by the SNP's uh, Kirsty Blackman, um, she kind of pointed out that Donald Trump's response to the uh, Black Lives Matter protest had been, as she called it, horrendous. And she asked, um, she asked the PM if he still believed that Trump had many, many good qualities, and and if so, what are they? And um, the the Prime Minister kind of re reiterated his um, response to you know George Floyd's death being um, you know a, a tragedy and had, had sickened him and what have you. But then kind of said, when it comes to um, Donald Trump's good good qualities, um, uh, what I can say is he is that he is the U.S. president. And that's pretty much all he could he could say were his good qualities that he was the U.S. president, and that the U.S. is is our ally. And you could you could say the background to that is is us seeking a trade deal and what have you. But that's kind of not not any kind of response at all. And that I don't think I think a lot of people who feel in this country very angry with how uh, Trump has responded that they'll feel they'll feel that's entirely insufficient. I think. Yeah, Paul. I know we keep saying that um, you know he is the U.S. president as. Boris Johnson said, but does there come a point where you have to call things out? Yeah, you, I can guarantee you he will never call out uh, Donald Trump because, you know, it's it's the way Boris Johnson operates. I, I saw both of them up close in the Biarritz summit last year for the G7. And Johnson's modus operandi is to get as close as possible and then closer still. Uh, so, you know, he plays up to Trump. He obviously thinks he's smarter than Trump, but you have to say that on issues like this, it's not a question of smartness. It's, it's a question of, of just ordinary decency. And um, 
you hear it from Dominic Raab as well, repeatedly, you know, there, there is this reluctance to criticise him personally. Uh, uh, the central question of whether or not you think you represent the whole of the UK, whether or not you feel you ought to represent Britain's natural revulsion of what some of the things Trump says. But he clearly thinks that that's not part of his job. He thinks his job is just to do the rail politic and, and as Rachel says, maybe get a good trade deal or maybe get an arrangement on all sorts of other issues and foreign policy. Um, Leila, you've uh, become embroiled in your own controversy this week uh, after impersonating the controversial Star Wars character Jar Jar Binks on Twitter. Uh, we've got to ask you about it, Leila. What, what happened there? Well, I was absolutely mortified that I, I had not made the connection between Jar Jar Binks and uh, the racist overtones, frankly, of that character. Um, I tweeted it in response to something Tim Farron had said, and I think it was about 1 a.m., so there's probably a, you know, don't tweet at 1 a.m. lesson to be learned here. Uh, but as soon as members told me that there was that connotation, I took it down. I contacted them. I apologised to them. Uh, it was a mistake, um, and I was absolutely mortified that I'd done that inadvertently. But I think, you know, again, it just goes to show there's so much that we still have to confront about you know how on earth was that character created in the first place was a question that I then asked myself um, and I remember uh, at the time people going I don't like him as a character but I didn't realize then uh, that connotations between black history that he was representing and it makes me think you know would a character like this be created now well obviously yeah. I would hope not and little britain was taken down this week as well we saw that too um it's right that as society gets more progressive and as society gets more enlightened uh that we take account of that and uh yeah no i will not be tweeting or saying anything about jar jar binks ever again <laughs> yeah fair enough and um, just just to come back to statues politicians like you Layla, and keir starmer and boris johnson have to condemn the fact that it was taken down unlawfully but mm. would we be having this debate? Would, would we be having this debate now? You know, Sadiq Khan set up a commission in London to look at monuments in London. Would it have happened? Because the debate in Bristol was going on for 20 years, wasn't it, without any action? So can you have some understanding of why, why behind what they did? I, I, I understand the frustration. And when I've spoken to uh, certainly black and brown members in the Liberal Democrats, who have also been raising issues like this for a very long time, their feeling is it's a lot of warm words and no action. And so that frustration, I absolutely understand. We, My promise to my own members for the issues in our own party, and let's face it, we aren't as diverse as we'd like to be either. Um, and I think the promise that all politicians now need to make to the whole of society is that warm words is not enough. Uh, what I've been calling for is uh, guidance from government to all councils to be setting up these commissions that are looking at their monuments. I think it's right for communities to be talking about the place of these uh, characters in the history of their towns, and then for the communities themselves to decide how it's going to happen. But I think we now need political pressure to get something done. And, you know, the exact wording on a plaque, which I understand was the issue in, in Bristol, um, meant that nothing happened. Uh, when, in fact, for many, many years, people had been making that direct link. Uh, it's not good enough and it needs to change. Uh, and I'm absolutely ashamed, frankly, uh, of all politicians who have said something warm in the past and then not done something about it. We cannot do this anymore. 
Well, it's a, a good moment to move on to the Lib Dem leadership race, which is beginning to pick up pace ahead of voting opening next month. Layla, you're battling against the current acting leader, Ed Davey, and Bath MP Vera Hobhouse for the top job. Uh, let's hear a little bit of your rival, Ed Davey, in action at PMQs this week. Under suspicionless stop and search powers, which this government is expanding, a black person is 47 times more likely to be stopped and searched than a white person. 47 times. On too many occasions, stop and search seems to mean being black is enough to be suspected of being a criminal. So will the Prime Minister abolish suspicionless stop and search powers and end the pain and injustice they wreak on so many people in Britain's black and minority communities? Uh, Leila, would it be a very good look for the Liberal Democrats if the party elected another white man to go with Johnson, Starmer and Blackford at PMQs? Well, I mean, it's up to the membership to decide what's a good look or not. Uh, but I would argue uh, that you do need to look at the other two party leaders when you're electing your new one. And one of the things that I offer is, and it's not tokenism, I don't want to be elected because I'm a woman or because of anything else. Um, actually, what I offer is, is another way of looking at politics. There's a different space that we can carve out. Uh, I think Keir Starmer is going very hard in on the sort of rational questioning thing that's undermining Boris Johnson. Um, and I've got a scientific background, so I can back him up in that. That's definitely the way that I approach politics. But the other side to it is that actually Boris Johnson, you can get to him if you are clever with your emotional intelligence. I've done this a couple of times in the past. For example, I got him to apologize to the family of Nazanin Zakari Radcliffe for the comments that he'd made that had made the situation worse, when for weeks others had not managed to do it. You can do it if you work out what his Achilles heel is in a particular issue. And I think actually you approach that emotionally. So that's one of my strengths. But more than that, I mean, what we need to now do as, as the Lib Dems is face up to where we are. I mean, we are bumping along the bottom at seven, eight, nine percent of the polls, if that. Um, we've had as many uh, leaders in the last number of years. We need to now find a clear direction for the next five to 10 years, a leader that's going to be there for the next five to 10 years uh, to offer the country a vision of hope uh, and to reassert what liberalism means in the 21st century. And I believe I'm the candidate to do that. Yeah, Rachel and Paul, as Leila mentions there, the Lib Dems are not in a great state at the moment. Vera Hobhouse, one of the candidates, is suggesting a, a pro progressive alliance is required for the Lib Dems now. What do you two make of the possibility of that and will it work? Um, my sort of instinctive response to that is that I don't think voters like pacts or alliances. I think if it comes to a general election, they like very much to, um, you know, sincerely vote for for something rather than vote for a compromise. Um, I, I just think instinctively voters don't really like deals or pacts or, you know, the parties trying to game the system in some way. I don't think, I just don't think voters really like it. And I don't think there's an overwhelming amount of evidence for, for things like tactical voting either. I don't think it's, I don't, I I don't, I don't think there's the, there, Do you think? Just because, uh, well, that's how I won my seat. So in 2017, I was 10,000 behind the Tories. And the way we won it was, I mean, the progressive alliance, people associate with just the centre left because that's what happened at the last election. But I overcame that majority by 
taking votes off all sides in a progressive alliance. So you do it from the Greens and the Labour side and the Greens stood down for me. But also critically, you also have to be able to get over conservatives who would consider voting Lib Dem. So these alliances don't have to necessarily be pacts as such, but we also have to face up to the fact that under the first past the post system, uh, in the history of Oxford Western Abingdon, since it was created, it had never returned an MP. Well, I dare say until the last election, and it did return me with more than 50%. But before that point, that had never been done before. Um, the first past the post system is broken. And unfortunately, uh, you end up in a situation in constituencies where people end up with an MP who most people did not want. You've got to, you know, understand the system that you're in. And I would argue that not, it's not gaming the system, but it's just getting voters to understand the system in which they are voting. Uh, and they get the choice at the end of the day. Parties don't do it. People still have full control over how they cast their vote. Um, that's the response to, to the broken system that we need to fix. I think yeah. what uh, Layla's is a very good case in point, because obviously um, for the Lib Thames to really succeed, they need to win seats like Layla's. Yet in the last election, they didn't win Cheltenham, for example. And mm -hmm. seats like Layla's, Layla's are a classic Lib Dem Tory fight. Labour's never really going to win a seat like Cheltenham. Even in the Tony Blair years, it, it was just not on the map for Labour. So there are lots of those seats that only the Lib Dems can win. The, for them, I... I, I I look back over a few results recently and it's obvious only when Labour does really well do the Lib Dems do really well. And so they've got a joint interest in uh, the Tory party actually suffering across the country in, in every single region. So although they might have a, a formal alliance or a pact, um, mutual interest, and uh, there's no question that in, in places in the South, Keir Starmer is going to try and resurrect the Blair formula. He's going to say, look, I'm Mr. Reasonable, and he's going to try and peel away some Lib Dem votes in some areas. But actually, he's smart enough to know that there's no way he's going to win your Oxfords, your Cheltenhams, etc., your Baths. He can, he's trying to focus on those areas with Labour Tory marginals where he really, really needs those Lib Dem votes to, to get home. So, for example, you've got Canterbury. There's no way Canterbury would have a Labour MP without lots of Lib Dem votes. There's no question. But they, areas like that, there is, a, there is an interest in both parties in, in seeing that they've got a common interest and then pursuing it. What will be fascinating will be whether or not Starmer can pull off the, the much more difficult trick of winning back those red wall seats while also having his electoral alliance in the south as well. Yeah. Canterbury's a really good example if I may Paul because when we were looking at the data there and I was talking to Rosie Duffield after the election we were peeling votes off the Tories and um, actually she was very clear she wanted us to stand in seats like that so we have to rather than just have yeah. this very simple quid pro quo approach that I think was taken at the last election and, and to be honest was a bit crude and really didn't deliver very much, which is perhaps what Rachel was referring to before. Um, actually, we can take a smarter approach this time, seat by seat, uh, and where it's the right thing to do, uh, then stand down as Greens often do, uh, it sends the signal. And I think what we need to now do is send a signal to progressive voters to rally around the Lib Dems in areas where we can beat the Tories. But we need to do it in a way that also doesn't scare off the Tories that we also need to win over to deliver those seats across the line. So you need to be able to do both. Uh, that's what I've done in Oxford Western Abingdon uh, for two elections running now. And I think I've got a formula that wins. I've just got to spread it across a few more seats than my own. And Leila, are you talking to Labour about the, the idea of a uh, kind of pacts? 
I, I don't think it's really my place to yet, um, but um, I'm not even sure at the moment PAX is the way to go. I think what we probably need to focus on is what we've got ahead of us. There's another four years before the next election. I mean, if you think back four years, we didn't even know Brexit was a word. There's a lot that can happen uh, before now and the next election. So we need to work together on what we can deliver against the Tories. But clearly over coalition, trust was lost between the parties. And that's the thing you need to get back. The reason why my pact with the Greens locally works is because we've built trust up over a number of years. Um, you need to build trust between the parties. And we're quite some way, I think, still uh, from that now. There was a lot of sword waving at the last election and uh, a lot of Labour activists proudly going and campaigning in uh, seats where only we could win off the Tories and also, frankly, uh, our party's uh, way that we attacked uh, Corbyn, I was not comfortable with. It was the wrong tactic. Uh, we need to get to a point where you put down the swords and actually focus on the common enemy, uh, which in this election coming will certainly be Boris Johnson. Yeah. Go on, Rachel. I was just going to say it's... Um... It's probably the, the the person that's most difficult for would be Keir Starmer because I mean it's sort of a, a been talked about loads of times before and but it's probably still true that Labour's a very tribal party and there's, there'll be a lot of elements of you know some of the unions that will really struggle to get on board with with an alliance I think so it'd be yeah. interesting interesting to see how Keir would handle something like that yeah. and just I don't really think it's needed and Leila on that do you think your 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 great advantage in this race is that actually you're completely untainted by the Tory Lib Dem coalition. Well, we'll see if it's a, an advantage or not, but I think I offer more than that as well. I mean, uh, what I described before about being able to carve out new political space for the Lib Dems, it's clear that what has been happening since coalition is not working. Whatever we're doing is not working. Um, and one of the areas that I do think we need to work on uh, is winning back some of that youth vote uh, winning back those uh, young people in constituencies that have universities that classically don't vote for us right now, but used to. I mean, when I was at university, it was cool to vote Lib Dem. Have you had um, any contact with uh, your, your your former leader, Jo Swinson? Has she offered you any advice? How is she How is she doing? Yeah, so she's, she's fine. She's got uh, two young boys and uh, we've had uh, some virtual drinks uh, as part of the uh, female MPs caucus, uh, which I love to say is now bigger than the male caucus in our parliamentary party, albeit, yes, small parliamentary party. Uh, but we also included some of the other MPs who'd lost their seats, uh, Luciana and Sarah and others. And, uh, you know, like a lot of MPs who've lost their seats at this time, when it's been really hard to then work out what to do next, because all these speaking engagements and things like that have kind of dried up. Uh, I think she's just focusing on having two young boys in a house during coronavirus right now. But she's doing really well. Uh, Layla, actually, think, sorry, I was going to say, Leila, do you think actually it's time for Joe to make a comeback in some form if in the new honours list, maybe make her appear? Well, I'm pretty certain we're not going to have any to, to give. So if Labour or the Tories want to do that, uh, I've no doubt uh, they, they should consider it. But um, I think she, she absolutely smashed a glass ceiling in our party. Uh, really proud uh, that we finally delivered our first female leader. That was amazing. She didn't have very long to bed in before that last election. And I'm certain that had she continued, we would have seen a lot more from Joe. Uh, but, you know, we are in that situation we are now. And uh, it's up to Joe, I guess, to decide what she wants to do next. Yeah. And Leila, just, just a final one. You, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but the Lib Dems kind of have a pretty poor record on diversity. What would you do to improve that? And why do you think that actually is? 
Well, you join clubs where the people in the clubs already look like you. And we are, uh, many political parties are, but we are, you know, as well, well-educated, white, middle-class, male, bit older. Um, that's the classic look of the party. Um, we need to attract people to our party uh, through reaching out to them. I think we need to stop being so complacent about it. Um, and the reason I think it's quite hard in the Lib Dems to, to make the case for this, although Black Lives Matter has really helped make the case for this, um, is that we are a party who naturally believes in equality. Uh, it's one of the central tenets of liberalism. Uh, it's something we're really proud of. And so for people to then say, oh, but uh, we're not doing good enough in this area just doesn't work in our own psyche. But actually, we have to confront this. And I think one of the things we should be doing is setting targets at a local party level. If your local party does not reflect the society you are aiming to serve, then you need a, a plan in place for going out, engaging with those communities, asking them to come and join us, and then finding ways to make uh, them feel included uh, in uh, the meetings that you have. And if that means changing how you do your meetings uh, and making it uh, more inclusive for them, then that's what you need to do. We, we failed, frankly, and it's time that we address it. And do you think, actually, when it comes to Gladstone, your former leader, the University of Liverpool this week said it wanted to rename a building over his slavery links. Do you think the party needs to sort of come on board with that and maybe acknowledge that history? So, I mean, all political parties have this as part of their history. Gladstone himself wasn't the slave owner. It was his father. Um, the liberals under Gladstone were actually very progressive uh, for their time. Um, but I think the issue more generally around should we as a country be confronting this? Absolutely. Uh, it's interesting. I didn't know this fact. Uh, but at the time of the abolition of slavery, uh, we paid out the equivalent of something between 17 and 20 billion pounds to these slave owners. We didn't pay off that debt until 2015. So anyone who has paid any taxes until 2015 in their own way has been complicit in this. And you know what I struggle with is I didn't even know. I didn't even know so I could I could rile against it. And that's you know, something's wrong there. So this is why we have to have this conversation. It's so important. Well, it's a fitting moment to move on to the quiz. And hey. um, since we're talking about statues, this week's quiz is all about Parliament Square. Oh, oh man. Yeah, it's a bit... I'm, uh... I am going to come up <laughs> short here. <laughs> yeah, when we're all stuck at home, it's it's harder to find topical uh, topics. But just, just shout the answer if you know it. That's the only rule. Um, first question, which US president is the only US president to have a statue in Parliament Square? Oh, is it Eisenhower? No. Truman? Would have guessed that. No. Lincoln? Yes. Ah, well done. Point for Rachel. <laughs> Uh, question number two. Uh, Brian Hall's protests in Parliament Square sparked the creation of new laws which made it illegal to demonstrate there without the permission of the Met Police. But what was he protesting against? The Iraq War. Well, the, the, the Iraq. first Iraq War. Yeah, he was in the tent, wasn't he, on yeah. Parliament Square for yeah. years and years. Paul, what are you saying there? The first Iraq when he first started it, and then the Iraq war happened and it basically became much more of an institution so yeah. he was actually he was actually there from the first um attacks on on iraq oh well before the uh iraq war started 
Oh really? Um, I thought I thought yeah. it was the, it was only the second one, but there we go. I'll give you a point for that, Paul. Well done. Uh, so it's one. I all... remember the pig protest in Parliament Square when loads of pig farmers erected a die, and that that was before Brian Hall was even there. So um, that's a long time ago. And the Countryside <laughs> Alliance—they've they've all been there. <laughs> all the big names. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Final question. Uh, a, one point for this only, but you need to name me the first and last statues to be unveiled in Parliament Square. Oh, well, the uh, last is Fawcett. Yeah, yeah isn't it? correct. Yeah, so I've got that one. Yeah. The first, I have no clue. Who would the first be? Oh, my God. There's an awful one, I think, of Jan Smuts from South Africa in Parliament Square, um, which is still there, amazingly. Um, oh, it would be one of... Would it be... Would it be Gladstone or someone like that? Is it, it's someone. Is it it's, a, mm, no, no, it's, a former, it's a former PM, and it was. A, it, I'll tell you, it was unveiled in the 19th century. Yeah, there isn't Israeli. So is it Salisbury? No. No, it's George Canning. All right, there you go. Of course. Gonna, How did I'm, I not know that? <laughs> Layla, I'm going to give you a point because you got at least one of them right. So it's yeah. a, a three-way draw. Everyone's happy. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so that you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with the Health Minister Helen Waitley performing one of the quickest reverse ferrets ever seen when she was asked who was to blame for coronavirus deaths in care homes. Said at all points in this, we follow the scientific guidance. Of and then you make the, the policy. Right you do. take their advice and you make the policy. You can't stick this on the scientists. Well, well I can, because I, I mean, I'm not... You I'm can't not, stick it on the scientists. No, 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 that's not what I mean to say. You just said that. <laughs> Yeah, you just I, said, I can stick this on but, the scientists. No, no, you can't. No, you can't. To be clear, that is your words. That is your words. No, you okay. said That's you not, can. I said, can what, you, st- you can't stick this on the scientists, and you said you can. I didn't put that in your mouth. You said it. Which is why I immediately said, what I mean to say is we have taken the scientific advice at every stage of this process. 